our passage is John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. It says, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, come before you asking to be fed from your word. We pray that your word would be uh, a source of nourishment to us this morning. I pray that you would help us to come and to see you in your revealed word. And that we would continue to delight in seeing who you are. We pray that you would help us to open our hearts and our minds and submit ourselves to your word and what you have for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Revelation tells us about a great banquet, specifically in Revelation chapter 19, that there is this, this lavish banquet that the Lord is preparing to celebrate the marriage of the Lamb of God. And like you, like anyone would, when they send out an invitation to a, to a wedding or to any celebratory event, right? We send an invitation to guests to come, and so the Lord also sends out an invitation to all peoples to come to this to come to this great banquet, to come and see. From the creation of Count to the story of the Exodus to the works and the ministry of the prophets to the ministry of Jesus, the whole story of the Bible. It's beckoning us to come and see. Come and see the God who created the world. Come and see how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. Come and see how God wonderfully works through the lives of his people who submit to him. Come and see the majesty and the glory of God. Come and see the face of God and the person of Jesus Christ. 
there's this invitation to come and see. However, like the parable of, uh, in the Gospels of the man who puts up this great banquet, but then he sends out an invitation to the guests, and the guests all reject the invitation. So the invitation to come and see goes to all the world. And tragically, many people reject that invitation. But those who accept the invitation to come and see are transformed by what they behold. In this section, Jesus makes an invitation to his first disciples to come and see. Disciples who display a wonderful curiosity about the person that they're about to behold. So again, picking it up in our passage in verse 35, it says, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus, and he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. The pattern in the passage is come and see. Those who come to Jesus, they see Jesus, and then they are, and then as a result, they follow Jesus. And immediately in the passage, we read that Jesus walks by John the Baptist and two of his disciples, and John the Baptist directs their attention to Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God, he's standing right before you. And as a result, John's two disciples leave him and they follow Jesus. And the two disciples are Andrew, which we find out later. And the second, most likely, is John the Evangelist, John who is the author of this gospel. At least that's the consensus. John the Baptist, now in this moment, John loses two of his disciples. Now, given that he had uh, generated such a large following, that is John the Baptist, I would say that he... and actually many others will say that John the Baptist had many other followers besides the two that he just lost. It was actually common back then for an individual to see a learned teacher and to come to them personally and to say, would you mentor me or can I learn under you? It was also not uncommon for a teacher to direct his disciples to another more learned teacher and to encourage them to seek the mentoring of that, of that particular teacher. But in this case, we know that Jesus is not just a greater or better teacher than John the Baptist, right? Given his mission, you would expect that John the Baptist taught his disciples about the Messiah, who he was, uh, uh, what he came to do, and also to anticipate his arrival. Even though they don't quite yet understand who the Messiah is and what he came to do, not so much later will they really understand in the fullest sense, but at least at this point, they're anticipating his arrival. They've been, they've been learning some things about the Messiah. And there he is, finally standing before them, is the Lamb of God. The two with, disciples who are with John the Baptist leave John and they follow Jesus. Right? So, and, but this doesn't just happen by chance. They don't just happen to be standing somewhere and Jesus walks by and they just happen to follow him. Right? This was intentional. In John 6, 70, after Jesus... Uh, teaches the people some hard things, a lot of those who were following Jesus 
walk away from Jesus. And then Jesus looks at his 12 disciples, and he says, will you leave me as well? And he says, well, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then Jesus responds by saying, have I not chosen you? So before we think that this, this whole situation happened by chance, no, this was intentional. Jesus had chosen Philip and John to be his disciples, to then become his apostles. And so when we read John chapter 1 in light of John 6, 70, where Jesus says that I have chosen you, we know that these individuals, that these two disciples are following Jesus because Jesus wants them to follow him. And this is then followed up by, by a great question. Jesus notices the two men following him, and he asks him, well, what are you seeking? Or what do you want? And this is not just a petty question or just a reactionary question to their following him, but this is a question that I think is much deeper than we might first realize. Anyone who shows any intent, any desire to come and follow Jesus, Jesus asks, what is it that you want? What are you seeking? And it's not a question that is meant to deter somebody from following, but it is a, it is a warm question. It is a, it is a question of invitation. Jesus is inviting an individual to come. Whatever it is that you're seeking, come and see. And even we, as beloved, adopted children of God, whenever we come before the Lord with our requests or with heavy hearts, the Lord extends his invitation and asks us, what are you seeking? What do you want? And he asks because he wants us to tell him. John Calvin writes, this kind and gracious invitation, which was once made to two persons, now belongs to all. We are not therefore to fear that Christ will withdraw from us or refuse to us easy access, provided that he sees us desirous to come to him. But on the contrary, he will stretch out his hand to assist our endeavors. And how will he not meet those who come to him, who seeks at a distance those who are wandering and astray, that he may bring them back to the right road? So the two disciples, in response to his question, ask, where are you staying? Kind of indicating that they're looking to just have a short dialogue with Jesus. They're looking to spend a significant amount of time with him. And Jesus invites them to come and see. And even that statement is much more profound than we might first realize. Because as we know, the, disciple, the disciples end up seeing a lot more than they first realize because they end up following Jesus, right? Maybe at first they were looking to have a conversation with Jesus and maybe go back to John the Baptist, maybe to kind of figure out if what John the Baptist taught them about the Messiah was actually accurate. But now having come and spent time with Jesus and seeing Jesus to, with their own eyes, well, now they then they end up following Jesus, they see a lot more than where Jesus was staying. They see the Messiah himself. And it's precisely for this moment that John the Baptist prepared his disciples. I mean, teaching them and, and helping them to anticipate the arrival of the Messiah. But unknown to these two disciples, seeing and beholding Jesus would transform their lives forever. They were eager to know him, to see him, and discern for themselves whether or not this was in fact the Messiah. And clearly they found a lot more than they realized because they end up following him. And then Andrew, one of those who follows Jesus, then goes on and finds Simon or Peter. So Andrew looks for Simon. He finds his brother. He says, we have found the Messiah. We found him. 
But does anyone ever really find the Messiah? I mean, nobody, I don't think, ever finds the Messiah. Now, clearly there are examples in the Scriptures and the Gospels where people are looking for Jesus and they find Him. But the only reason people are looking for Jesus is because Jesus draws them to Himself. John 12, 32, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. The only reason Andrew and John found Jesus is because Jesus drew them to himself, and he chose them for himself. And those who are chosen by God through Christ are drawn to Christ. In Romans 8, 29, it speaks of God's choosing people, where it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called that is called to follow Jesus Christ. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And this is also the case with Simon. Andrew finds Simon. Simon brings him to Jesus. And little did he know that his life would be changed as well. Jesus it says that looks at Simon. He says, you are Simon, son of John. Now, in the Old Testament, and even to today, when we when we hear, when we read in the Old Testament about an about individual naming their son or daughter, it carries the meaning that they belong to them, right? And that's kind of the same thing that we do with our own children. When we name our children, we are saying that you, son, belong to me, or you, daughter, belong to me. You are mine. And so in effect, Jesus was saying, Simon, son of John. Simon, you belong to your father, John. But from now on, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And I think Jesus was saying, from now on, Peter, your life belongs to me. Even for we ourselves, did you know that in Revelation, it tells us that every single believer will have a new name, which means that God has placed an ownership over your life. Not that he does it now, right? We've given the Holy Spirit of God as a seal, as a guarantee that we belong to God, but that, but that adoption process is completed when God gives us a new name, saying that we now, in the fullest and complete sense, belong to God. So Jesus renames Peter, renames Simon to Peter. And Jesus gives him the name Peter, not because, of, not because Jesus is omniscient and he can look into the future and what will become of Peter, but Jesus gives him the name Peter because of what he will make Simon into. Gradually, Jesus will reveal to Peter and to the other disciples and open their mind to understand that he is the Son of God. And that will lead Peter to make the incredible confession that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And it is upon that rock-solid confession that Jesus will build his church. Matthew 16, 15. Jesus says to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Andrew, John, and Peter come, and they follow Jesus. They behold him because Jesus had chosen them to be his disciples and become his ambassadors to the world, proclaiming the gospel. And as we continue in the passage, Jesus hints to these men that they are going to see great things. And we see this when he calls two other individuals to follow him. 
Philip and Nathaniel. So in verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So Jesus continues to extend this gracious invitation to come and see when he calls Philip to follow him. And we have no idea how that, how that conversation played out. All it says is that Jesus found him, he called him to follow him, and Philip follows him, right? But how that interaction happened, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. What's important is that Philip followed him. And that's kind of, ah, that's how Christianity works. When Jesus commands an individual to follow him, there's no dilly-dallying about it. The call is to respond immediately and to come and to follow Jesus. It's not the other way around, right? We're not the one who takes the initiative. We're not the one who tells Jesus, no, can we, can we just wait a second? Can we just wait until things are in order, until I get this done, and then I'll come follow you? No, Jesus makes the initiative. He says, you come and follow me, and then we respond to his gracious invitation. David Platt, in his book, Follow Me, writes, this is the heart of Christianity, and we are prone to miss it when we describe becoming a follower of Jesus as inviting him into our hearts. The reality of the gospel is that we do not become God's children ultimately because of initiative in us, and he does not provide salvation primarily because of an invitation from us. Instead, before we were ever born, God was working to adopt us. While we were lying alone in the depth of our sin, God was planning to save us. And the only way we can become a part of the family of God is through a love entirely beyond our imagination and completely out of our control. Christianity does not begin with our pursuit of Christ, but with Christ's pursuit of us. Christianity does not start with an invitation we offer to Jesus, but with an invitation that Jesus offers to us. And then he continues, our souls are struck by the greatness of the one who has called us. We are overwhelmed by the magnitude of the words, follow me, because we are awed by the majesty of the me who says them. So it's not so much a question about whether or not Jesus is in our heart, right? It's a question about initiative. Who is the one who initiates the relationship? It's not us. It is Jesus. Jesus is the one who descended from heaven, came down to our earth, lived like one of us, died for us, was raised for us, and then he extends the invitation for us to come to him so that we might follow him. He takes the initiative, right? I think of the, uh, the, uh, like an, uh, an adoption process, right? When you're in the process of adopting, right, the, it's the adoptive parents who take all the initiative, right? They're filling out all the paperwork, they're meeting with individuals, having placing phone calls, uh, so on and so forth, paying all the fees, the, the prospective child can do nothing on their own to bring themselves to the adoptive parents, but it is the parents who take every action and every initiative to bring the child to himself, and that is exactly what Jesus does. He brings us to himself through his death on the cross, and then we, as a result, respond to his gracious invitation to come and follow him. The difference is that as parents, right, you don't bring glory to yourself. You don't try to bring glory to yourself in, a, in adopting a, a child, but God 
brings glory to himself. That's the ultimate purpose in his adopting children to himself through Jesus Christ, to bring glory to himself. And as a result, we're given a new heart, right? Jesus removes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh that beats to the same rhythm of Christ's heart and a heart that wants nothing more than to just follow Jesus Christ. And also following Jesus is much more than just learning and imitating and living like Jesus. Mark 8, 34 tells us that Jesus calling the crowd with, to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? That's what it means to follow Jesus. It's a life of self-denial in order that you might find life in Jesus Christ and have it abundantly. Philip, at that time, had no idea what it meant to follow Jesus. But he, along with the other disciples, will soon discover that to follow Jesus meant self-denial to, to an extreme degree in order that they may actually gain life. So Philip doesn't understand yet to the fullest degree who Jesus was, but he does come to realize that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one from the royal line of David, the one prophesied by the prophets. And you know he doesn't understand yet the full identity of Jesus Christ because he also identifies Jesus as the son of Joseph, who was from Nazareth. So there's still this, there's still this kind of this vague idea that Jesus is just a royal figure, but he doesn't understand yet that Jesus is, in fact, the very Son of God that is divine. And then to which, and he tells this to, to Nathaniel, and to, to which Nathaniel responds by saying, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? What he, in effect, was saying that Nazareth is such an obscure place, looked down upon by so many other towns, so many other individuals, that who in the world could ever conceive that anything good could ever come from Nazareth? Right? Who would ever conceive that the Messiah would come from Nazareth? But Philip invites him to come and see. And then we have this interaction between Nathanael and Jesus. In verse 47, it says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. So Jesus makes an interesting statement about Nathanael. He says, but it was intentional. He says, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Right, there's two words that are important. Israelite and deceit. And so Jesus was thinking about another Israelite who was full of deceit. Do you have any idea who he's referring to? He's referring to Jacob. Jacob was an Israelite who was a deceitful man. He was a trickster who stole the inheritance from his brother, deceived his father, made a fool of Laban. Jacob also wrestled with God, and he was renamed Israel, which means one who strives with God. And Jesus says about Nathanael that 
he is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. One commentator translates it like this. He says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. So Nathaniel was a man without guile. He was a man who's just an honest and transparent and genuine man, which also might indicate that Nathaniel was an Old Testament saint, someone who may have actually been searching and looking for God. And rather than taking a humble position when anyone would say this, oh, you are an honest person, we might say, oh, well, you know, I have my moments, but Nathaniel doesn't do anything like that. He just kind of owns up to it and says, Lord, how do you know me? And then Jesus, continuing to show his omniscience, says that he saw Nathaniel under the fig tree. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus just happened to see him in the fig tree the other day. Like, oh, I just happened to see you the other day, and that's how I know you. That's not what it means here. It means something much more significant. Something happened under that fig tree. We have no idea what it was. Maybe Nathaniel was, was praying to the Lord. Maybe he was thinking about an Old Testament scripture and had this profound revelation. Maybe for somehow the Lord spoke to him under that fig tree. Whatever it is that happened to Nathaniel under that fig tree, only he knows and Jesus knows. And Jesus is saying, I know what happened under that fig tree. And you know that something must have happened under that fig tree because Nathaniel responds with shock. He says, Jesus, you are the son of God. You are actually the Messiah. And Jesus responds, classic response, like, is that the only reason you believe that's it? You're going to see greater things than that. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And Jesus, again, is making a reference to Jacob. Jacob ran away from his home, fleeing because he was afraid of his brother, and he found himself in a field somewhere, and he laid down to rest and sleep, and he had this incredible dream of angels ascending and descending from the throne of heaven. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that dream. Jesus is the bridge, or he's the ladder between heaven and earth. Because Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden and cast from the fullness of the presence of God. And because we have inherited the sinful nature of Adam and Eve, well, then we also cannot have this direct relationship with God. We are prohibited from having this direct access to God. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ashes is under the lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Even though God continued to be present and personally involved with his creation and with his people, there was never any direct access to God, not in a way that we can have this intimate and personal relationship and fellowship with God. It was impossible because of our sinful nature. And how could we ever expect to? Because God is glorious, he is holy, he is transcendent. How can that which is holy mix in with that which is unholy? But Romans 3.24 so it says that we are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
And Romans 5.1 also tells us, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So now Jesus invites all people everywhere to come and to follow him to the direct access to the Father that he has purchased through his shed blood on the cross. And so he has provided this access. He's provided this this direct access to the Lord. He is the bridge between heaven and earth. I mean, do you realize the magnitude of what that means? The heavens were closed to us before, but now in Jesus, they're open. We can have access to the very throne of grace because Jesus opens the way for us to the Father. We can now pray to the heavenly Father because Jesus opens this way for us. Now we can receive the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our future adoption and our salvation and also is our comforter and helper in our time of need. Because of this direct access that we have to the heavens, to God himself, we receive gifts for the building up of the body of Christ that is his church. Because of this direct access that we have now to the heavens, to the place where God dwells, now we can actually enter and permanently dwell there with God and with Jesus Christ, just like Gerard and Jed are doing right now. It's all because of Christ and what he has done. He is the ladder between heaven and earth. So then, by way of exhortation and application, let me leave you with this. Come and see Jesus. To come and see Jesus is not not something that you only do once, but you must come to him over and over and over again. And that's because we are prone to forget the image of our loving Savior. Our sins tend to make us forget about the holiness of Jesus. But have no fear and do not be prevented by shame from coming to Jesus and beholding his forgiveness displayed on the cross. Anxiety and worry tend to make us forget about the Savior who holds all things in the palm of of his hands, including your very life. He invites you to come And to see him as the one who promises to never leave you and to never forsake you. And that he is even working all things for the good of your life. Sometimes we are plagued with the tyranny of the urgent. There's always something to do. There's something we're going about from here, from there, to working, to doing all these things and and all these other things that we forget to slow down and behold our Savior. And to think of him and to pray to him. Come. And behold, the one who has time in his hands, who at the right time came and died for the ungodly. Come and see Jesus and also follow Jesus. Behold your God every single day and commit every single day to following your Savior. And that commitment is going to cost you your desires, your wants, but it is in place of pursuing a greater life in Jesus Christ. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. What does that look like? Well, it could look like a number of things. To follow Jesus might mean you might be honest and to tell the truth when lying might make you look better. It could be spending 30 minutes in prayer when you can instead be spending that time watching television. It could mean following the Lord to wherever He calls you, even if your greatest desire is to stay put. To follow Jesus means that you give up your idea of what, the good, what you think is the good life and embrace 
what Jesus' idea is of the good life, and that is a life that is lived to the glory of God. And if you don't know Jesus, he is calling you this morning to come and to see him and to follow him. He wants you to come and follow him. It's not about you taking the initiative, but Jesus has already taken the initiative. He's died on the cross for sin, and now he calls all people everywhere to come and to follow him. Direct access to the heavens are now open, and that access is there for you by placing your faith and trust upon Jesus Christ and committing your life to following him. And you will have the blessings that can only come from God. Those who come and see Jesus, those who really see him, they don't just walk away. They follow him. My prayer is that you would continue to see Jesus, to behold him and to follow him every day of your life. If you're having trouble following the Lord, maybe you've had trouble following the Lord for whatever reason, just in the past few days, maybe just today particularly, maybe just in the past few weeks, maybe in the past few months, whatever it is, you can respond today by coming before the Lord, by praying to the Lord and committing to following him. In a moment, we're going gonna to sing one last song, and it's a time of response, but one of the ways that you can respond is by simply praying. If you need somebody to help you and to, to pray with you, I'm more than glad to. I'll be here in the front, but if you want to pray, you can do so from your seat. You can kneel in your seat, or you can come to the altar and pray at the steps, whatever it is. But if you are having trouble following the Lord, don't leave here today unchanged, but go before the Lord, pray to him, and commit your life to following him once again. Let's pray. Father, we admit that our hearts are prone to wander, and this tension is always there, perhaps even on a daily basis. We are prone to forsake the, the God that we love, but I pray that you would help us by your spirit to be strengthened, to commit ourselves to following you. I pray that you would help us, Lord, in our times of struggle, that your spirit would provide the strength that we need. Because we admit, Lord, that to follow you isn't always an easy thing. We have our own wants and our own desires, and things happen to us that make it difficult, Lord, but you, you are with us. You protect us and you strengthen us and you guide us. And so we pray that you would continue to pour out that strength to your children. Help us to follow you, Lord, because to follow you, to live a life of discipleship under the master who is Jesus Christ leads to a life of abundance and ultimately to, to eternal life. So we pray that you would help us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.